Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, we're joined by CNN commentator and political strategist Angela Rye. It's been one year since Kobe Bryant's tragic death, but with everything that happened in 2020, were we able to grieve properly? Plus, now Biden's work begins, but is unity possible? We were just talking about Wes's dog, like the things that used to be kind of unacceptable, like hearing kids in the background or hearing a dog making a ton of noise. Like now we just kind of all get it. Yeah. There's no way around it. Um, yeah, that's definitely the truth. We are in the new abnormal. That is for sure. <laughs> the new ab- are we ever getting out? Do you, I mean, I, I thought for sure we'd be out by now. Man. I just, I'm still surprised that we went in, right? Like, I'm still like, what exactly happened and how did we get here? And why were we not responsible enough um, to not be here? There are um, things that I'm really concerned about, especially with young people, like how they're growing up in school is Zoom and, you know, all of these things that we've had like real lived experience to compare this to and they really haven't. Um, so I have two godsons, um, actually I have five guy kids, but two that are in LA and they are 16 and 10 and just watching even how they interact with people now versus before is, it's so different, you know? So I'm like, man, I really hope they can come out of this and be okay. Yeah, no, I think about that all the time that the, the students, the kids, like what it must be like to come up in this environment with these things. Also someone, maybe someone tweeted this something once that it's been stuck in my head, but I also wonder like what neuroses we're all going to have when we're like old, old, you know, we're going to be 98, like wearing 19 masks. Like, what are you doing? Did you, but you know, and all of our grandkids would be like, what's wrong with you? And we'd be like, oh, that was from the, that was from the plague of, of 2020. To the question of like, are we ever going to come out of this? My answer would be to that would be no. Like, I don't, I don't think this is a thing that you come out of. I think this is a paradigm shifting thing. Like, 9-11 was a paradigm shifting thing. So kids who are of that particular generation, they're not going to know life before a a quote unquote war on terrorism. My five month old is probably not going to know life like his formative experiences are when we put him in the stroller to leave the house. We put a whole cover over the over the stroller to take him outside. His formative, you know, he sees when I leave the house, I put a mask on. And when I come back in, he kind of looks at me and he waits for me to take the mask off. And when I take the mask off, he smiles. He doesn't know life without daddy leaving the house and putting a mask on. I don't I can't imagine like I don't think I don't know about y'all, but is any does anybody plan on like shaking, actually directly shaking hands with people after you get the? I don't want to I don't want to touch nobody's hands. No more, well, I, th- I think about the hands every time I do an elbow greeting with someone. I'm like, this mm-hmm. is actually a much better greeting. Like this is an upgrade. Facts. I would much rather bump elbows with strangers than touch their hands. But it does make me think about the Roaring Twenties because, you know, history is cyclical and, you know, they were coming off of the pandemic um, of 1918. World War One had just ended like they were celebrating this tremendously difficult historical period. So I feel like there there are there are such bright, sunny days ahead, because when we are able to see each other again, when we are able to celebrate in person again, like we're not going to take that for granted. We're going to be so happy to be together again and people are going to be dressing up because they got somewhere to go and people to see and be seen like I feel like that's also coming I just feel like it can't come soon enough 
like those days can't come soon enough. Um, so in terms of headlines, um, West- If I have the date right, this is the one year anniversary of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna's uh, tragic death in the helicopter uh, crash. And to be clear, they weren't the only ones killed. There were other victims as well. It was something I kind of spent some time this morning trying to read back through a little bit about the other folks, right? Not taking anything away from the Bryant family, but I just realized it had been a year since I had spent any time thinking about the tragedy of these other families and, and whatnot. And, and it is very interesting because where we are in the year, in the calendar, this is the Kobe Bryant's death was kind of one of our last moments of public mourning together. I remember watching the funeral services. I remember people going out. It's so, it's, it's really interesting, you know, and I'm wondering what you guys think about, I mean, one, the idea that this has even been a year, right? It's almost like the country stopped right after this and we've been all in our houses ever since then. Um, it, you know, just kind of thinking back on that year, but then also, you know, this idea of public mourning and the fact that we haven't all kind of collectively got to spend time together in ways that are kind of like healing and restorative in general, but also, um, you know, for all the death and people who've, you know, who've gone through things this last year, we've had to do almost all of it digitally in group text on, on Zoom, you know, and just kind of thinking about that feeling in that moment of when that helicopter crash happened last year. Yeah, it um, to me, it feels like that should have been a really good, a good signal for us that this year or that that last year was going to be trash, like complete trash. It was um, it was so shocking in ways that um, I personally hadn't felt since Nipsey was killed. And it was. Um, you know, it was such a cultural hit, not just in the sports world, but in the black community and um, folks who are literally of his generation. Like I said on my podcast in the year in review, like I remember when he was taking Brandy to prom and we all wanted to be, mm -hmm. you know, Brandy, like I, he need to come to my prom too, right? Like <laughs> uh, mine is next year. I mean, what's going on? So, mm -hmm. you know, um, just feeling that pain for him, for his family, for the community, um, for folks who are LA and, you know, best coast centered who love Kobe, like, oh my God, um, you can Did drive you down best coast, best coast for sure. I thought I, I was certain <laughs> you made a mistake. You don't want to correct no. that. I did oh, not, especially not in the middle of my Kobe tribute, where I was going to say next, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> where, you know, you drive up and down the streets in LA and it'll be any random block and you see a mural dedicated to him and Gianna. Um, and so to compound that with everything that Vanessa Bryant has experienced, still having three girls and then having this very public falling out with her mother, like, how do you lose your husband and then have this very toxic public disagreement with your mom. I just cannot imagine what that's like and compound that with COVID and whoever she's lost due to COVID. It was also, it was also a little bit of the way, the, the method of the tragedy, right? Like we've all had experience with, with various different types of death, you, Ill, illness, cancer, um, you know, Chad, Chadwick Boseman tragically last year was, was lost to cancer and it was in some way it was a shock but it also becomes a little bit more understandable because we've all individually known people who have who have had cancer, who have had you know various illnesses, who have died. The shock of a of a of a beloved public figure at a young age to an accident of that magnitude. Um, it wasn't a car crash; it was a helicopter. Right? It was one of the things that. 
people who are wealthy use modes of transportation like that to in order to be safer, in order to avoid being on the freeway, in order to avoid having to be in, in the crowd. Like it's a thing that you that that level of privilege and his level of, of wealth and fame allowed him to do. That was a that was a difficult day. You know, hearing about a public figure who's so beloved dying suddenly is always shocking. If it's, you know, Princess Diana or Aaliyah, there's always that shock. But what took the wind out of me was that his daughter was with him. And mm-hmm. this was, you know, I, I sadly, I, I, all of the girls were not as identifiable to me as she was because they were always together. You would see them at basketball games. You know, you would see them out always together. And so it was that sinking feeling of what that family is now going through facing two such profound losses. And the, the brutality and the cruelty of 2020 is that I feel like we never got to catch our breath. It was just one thing after another, after another. And it's like, you know, pandemic, shutdowns, George Floyd, protests in the street, black people being beaten in the street. It just kept coming and it didn't stop until last week. I mean, we started the year with an insurrection an impeachment and an inauguration. Hopefully we're done <laughs> with all Don't the drama this, now, Mara. but we just haven't Don't had a chance it. to catch our breath. There hasn't just been the same space to, you know, I'll, I can't imagine in any other year Kobe Bryant dying and that night ending not with me at the sports bars with the guys just talking, right? In a way that not like it would have been some special wake or me. That's kind of where we would end up in normal times together. But that that would have been how we processed it in our, in our community, right? The idea that my mom isn't at Bible study talking to her friends about Larry King, right? One of the ways we all process the world is, you know, in community like that. And everyone has been robbed of that in the ways that we were used to. And thinking about, too, I don't want to keep going through the, the year memoriam, but um, Mara, you and I, of course, share a good friend, Sunny Hostin, and like her losing her in-laws a week apart from COVID when one of them is a doctor. You know, I mean, it just was this very jarring, clear example. And my dad, my Aunt Brenda, was, you know, she died earlier this year. It wasn't from COVID, I'm sorry, last year, still all blurring together. And my dad telling me that um, we did, we ended up having a memorial service outside in the backyard of my cousin's house, but his real mourning opportunity was his Facebook post for her birthday in December and him talking about crying. So to your point, Wes, about this abbreviated grieving, we're worried about the kids. It sounds like we also need to be worried about the adults and what our mental health and our ability to process through grief and trauma really looks like. Speaking of the collective, like making sure you're not taking it out on the collective, but you're giving space to the collective to love, to walk in empathy and patience, knowing that we don't know what everyone is going through. When we think about all the people that we've lost, um, you know, kind of the nation, the world, and then all of the notables that we just mentioned, you know, it does really feel on a spiritual level, like we are going through this winter, if you will, you know, the Bible talks about seasons to all things, there is a season. I mean, there is no disputing that there is this darkness in the whole world right now. Um, And, you know, I try to hang on to the hope of seasonal transition, that if there's winter, spring is right around the corner. So, you know, we just, we just got to hold on. But it does feel like there's a, there's a real, real darkness right now that I imagine is probably what it felt like during World War II, during periods of, of huge global loss, death, suffering, and strife. I think that's such an important 
thing to think about as well in that global context. I'm sitting next to my partner who has her headphones on and can't hear that that I'm talking about her, right? But her her family is in she the listening? Open, right? She's you, you not, think she um, can't you know, hear you? She she, she listening? But you know you know Ethiopian American and her family's in Ethiopia. We were there. I, I mean, I actually am really happy retrospectively. We were out there for New Year's Eve going into last year. Right. But to think about one, there's obviously strife and conflict happening in Ethiopia at this very moment. But then also for anyone who's a migrant, who's an immigrant, people who just don't even have physical, you know, I haven't been able to see my parents or grandparents, but like, I know they're right over there. Right? You know, like I know we, we do the Thanksgiving Zoom. I know if I had to get in the car, I could go. You have people who cannot go. I remember I did a piece for GQ on Trevor Noah at the end of last year, and we were talking about how he couldn't go see his mom in South Africa. I mean, imagine being the migrant worker who's here in the States, who literally is just stuck here on their own, perhaps, right? Or, and now they don't even necessarily have the community of the people they would see at work or that, you know, I just, I do wonder what that looks and feels like for so many different people. Moving on to our, our second headline, Tuesday afternoon, um, President Biden signed four executive orders that were designed to address um, different racial inequalities, um, including ending the Department of Justice's use of private prisons, uh, respecting tribal sovereignty, addressing racial bias in housing, and addressing xenophobia and violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Is this him beginning to deliver on what he owes Black voters? Um, so yes and no. Um, I think that a really tough reality, if we didn't learn anything else from 2020, um, it should be that we need to tell the whole truth as we clearly see it. And what I'll say is what it it demonstrates to me is a willingness to at least fulfill um, some of the things that were sought after that were already happening under the Obama administration. These Many of these things were done. People were like, Harriet, I'm like, Harriet was supposed to happen already. Like we celebrated that five years ago, right? You know, like, but here we are again. And so um, what I will applaud is a willingness to go above and beyond where we were um, when folks were campaigning in 2016, because what we've shown um, even when we didn't want to, because it resulted in the death of Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or George Floyd, or even the fact that I can, you know, just reel off names like that as if, again, Wes, to your point earlier, there's no real collective opportunity to grieve. Um, what we know from all of the people who have died from COVID is that racism is real. This country was built on white supremacy and we have to unpack that. It has to be addressed at its very foundational roots. And until it is, all of these um, kind of um, surface adjustments are just that, you know, okay, so they signed the executive order on um, ending the utilization of private prisons what happens to the folks who are incarcerated at those private prisons? What do those conditions look like? The folks who are incarcerated um, at the border, right, because of ICE detention centers, which are also private prison contractors, what happens with that? And so I really think it's about um, holding folks accountable with, before you cheer, right? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do the half-ass commending anymore. I don't want to do the partial like, oh, that's good. I'm really proud that they did that. I would also say, I would say, no, here's where we are. Here's what's needed. And then here's how we do that. Like, I understand what you're trying to do. I understand that it's safe to fulfill an Obama 
era legacy item. I get it. I understand why you were a part of it. However, that's not what we need anymore. And I kept saying, and Wes, I know you would also appreciate this around George Floyd. You cannot um, suggest a 2014 solution to a 2020 problem. That's what I was saying last year. One in the same right now. Those solutions don't work anymore. They didn't really work before, if we're honest. And so how dare you propose a piecemeal solution to talking about protecting us and helping us to survive. So I think that's my harsh reality. You know, I'm interested, Angela, in in that, because, you know, one thing that's come up as I've talked to people in civil rights space, activists, like, I mean, we all know kind of professional black world is a small world, so we're all talking to each other and, you know, but in those conversations, and not just in those conversations, in public statements and the way in the, is it's been very interesting people beginning to, or these kind of vocally, applying what they consider not just the quote-unquote lessons of the Trump era, but also the quote-unquote lessons of the black era or of the Obama era, right? This idea that, um, you know, the Obama presidency presented something very unique to, I think, civil rights space because there was some, because there was, I think, a component of all black people to some extent wanting to protect the Obamas and Barack Obama and his legacy and knowing that there was a, a you know harsh opposition and that the Republicans weren't being fair or X, Y. And so people who saw the Obamas as allies weren't necessarily blowing them up in public or picking a fight about this. And, and I do think it's been really interesting in the civil rights space talking to folks who essentially are saying, we're not going to make that mistake again. Like we love Kamala, we're cool with Joe or whatever. And, and not all of them are Kamala, not all of them are cool with Joe. But the idea that certainly we prefer them to Trump or to, but that we actually need the thing. <laughs> and, and, it's, and I think that's going to be really, really interesting, right? Again, I think the Obama, the Obama years are such a unique moment in time because he was like, both a current ruler and a historic figure. And so you're trying to figure out how to triangulate around all of that versus this moment in this world where it's like, all right, we had a black guy run stuff and we were still upset about X, Y, and Z. So now this time we're not, we're not leaving anything unsaid. We're not leaving things off the table. No, we want this and we want this and we want, and I think that's going to be really, really interesting. So in the, so in the president's, in the president's remarks earlier, he said a couple of things that stood out to me that I'm going to, I'm going to give him credit for it, and then I'm going to talk about where I hit the pause button. He, he, he said the country needs to make the issue of racial equity the business of the whole government. Uh, I ran for president because I believe we're in a fight for the soul of America and our soul will be troubled as long as we allow systemic racism to exist. I give him credit for, for those words because I don't know, even during the, the Obama administration, um, and somebody can correct my reading of history, but I don't recall any any other president, including President Obama, explicitly saying that it would be the work of the entire uh, government apparatus to address systemic racism. Um, to to say that and to say that so early in, in your term and to make it uh, and and to make it clear that that you want every government agency to examine what it needs to do uh, by by way of addressing. Uh, systemic racism and how and how that uh, is played out in society, I think that's I think that's really important. I think it's an important acknowledgement. I think it's I think it's moderately hopeful if it can be acted upon. Now, beyond that, I think uh, I, I, I do think that Angela's point um, is is well taken. We can't get get too excited about just going back to like a lot of the things that you got to understand that 
He can't do that without Congress. Congress is not going to, even though the Democrats have control of, of you know, all three branches of, uh, or, or at least both, both chambers of Congress right now and the presidency, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to enact uh, every single thing that President Biden wants to do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be the political will and the political appetite to, to take some of the more progressive steps that are, that are needed uh, in order to in order to do things that you can't do in an executive order like the executive order was the easy thing to do especially when you're talking about signing on to things that were already in play four years ago and just reactivating those things it's going to be much more difficult to legislate some of the changes and some of the things that have to happen through through congress so we need to pause that the other thing that i would that i would say here and i'm actually writing about this in my in my column for medium now is there are some things that we need to that we need to make sure that we don't get too excited about just just overall, right? So we have a we have a new president. I think a lot of people are super excited that 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 Trump is like Trump is gone. And people are like, yeah, Trump Trump is gone. But there are there are lots of things that the Trump administration did that weren't necessarily, you know, that that weren't greatly publicized, but were very harmful. That those things need to need to be acted on there. Are, and there are also some things I think there's a certain. When you feel the level of existential threat that I think Trump represented to to many people uh, in, in this country and not just symbolically, but 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 actual like actual existential threat, um, I think it's I think it's very. Um, I think it's I think it's easy when you see that per that threat moved out of the way to to kind of take your foot off the gas pedal. And I think and I'm worried that the inclination that we've seen a lot of energy in the last four years, not just around not just around the wheels of government, but just in terms of our own communities and our own spaces. The examination and the study of racism is never anything that um, really on a bipartisan level, maybe except for now with the 1776 commission from Trump, but across the board, whether you go back to Richard Nixon's first meeting with what would become the Congressional Black Caucus and their 61 recommendations um, that they were, that they gave to him, the study of racism has never been anything that governments st steer clear from. What they steer clear from is what comes as a re or as recommendations from the study, right? So even Bill Clinton was fine with apologizing for slavery. What should happen after you apologize, right? Um, when you when you look at uh, the idea that he says this needs to be addressed by the whole of government, okay, cool. What are you going to do after you see? Because we've been telling you this for years um, that. Black people don't get government contracts. And when they do, it's in food and janitorial services. How do I know that my dad was a government contractor, right? When he started making too much money, there was a naval officer who said, we got we to gotta stop letting this nigger <laughs> make all this money. The Filipino lady who worked for him told him that that's what happened. So there are a number of Eddie Rise in government contracting spaces who we know are kept out, you know, and they will do, you know, set aside in these small contracts. But what about that sole source contract going to Boeing or going to Lockheed or going, you know what I mean? Like those are the kinds of things that really have to be addressed. At the end of the day, 
you have to unpack and unravel the white supremacy and the privilege that comes from those relationships from breathing that rare air. What are they going to do when the study shows them that? That's what I want to know. The hiring where you're like, you and, 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 and the, the young person's dad go to the same country club. That's the kind of racism that we have to unpack. So you can study till you're blue in the face, but if you're not willing to implement what the study will clearly show you because it's been studied for years, we're going to find ourselves in the same position. So that's the only pushback I will offer. And then finally on Trump, Trump might be gone, but Trumpism is alive and well, and it is not party specific. That is what is also known as white supremacy. So we got our work cut out for us. <laughs> well, I think what's going to be interesting on that implementation question is also how does if a Biden-Harris administration is committed to the standard that he said in that speech, right? If, if it's the work of the whole government and this is you know vital and important, right, and work that cannot stop until it is done. How do you do that and implement that in a way that the next person can't just undo, right? How do you – because that becomes the push and pull as well. A lot of what we're seeing in the early Biden-Harris days are them, as Angela noted, just saying, all right, we're going to do the thing Obama did again. You know how Trump undid it? All right, now we're redoing it, right? That This is not – we're getting back to where we were <laughs> in 2020 or, or in 2016, right? As opposed – and so – and the reality is – were Donald Trump to get elected again in 2024, he could send all the same, all right, Muslim ban exists again and trans military ban exists again. And and so it can't just be this kind of kickball back and forth. It's how do you implement systems? If, if this is a problem that permeates American society and American culture, how do you do work that one can't be so easily undone? That sets structures and systems and the rules and the and and I think that's really difficult, right? I, I see this a lot, not just in a racial context, but you know, having done a lot of reporting around criminal justice and criminal justice policy and all these types of things, right? The issue is the country was set up to run based on laws that have to pass through legislatures, but we currently exist in a world where Congress doesn't pass that many laws in one direction or the other. So we attempt to fix all of these problems through an executive order or the AG says we're going to do this or they're going to – without actually having a requirement built into the law, right? And so what ends up happening is someone comes in with a different political ideology than you or a different agenda and they can just say, we're just not going to do that thing they used to do. We're going to – and I think that, especially on issues of race and equity and justice, we see this over and over and over again. Right. That the work the Obama administration was doing on policing and the consent decrees and the investigations, Trump could just say, we're just not going to do it. Right. There was nothing that required them to do this work. There was nothing that required they funded the work be done. Glad that you that you brought up law. And it, 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 some of that goes back to, I guess, who who's running your Justice Department. Some of it some of it simply goes to whether or not we're enforcing the law. One of the things that I think is going to be examined or, or should be examined by those of us in who who are reporters in the media, in the media spaces, we can't let go of the abandonment of the rule of law under the previous administration. Right? This was an administration that talked a lot about being law and order, but didn't but didn't do a ton in terms of enforcing the laws where it, where it didn't want to. So you're you're correct in that a new administration in in many regards can come in and we can we can get into a conversation about how much power has been accumulated in the last several decades by the executive branch that actually should be residing within within the legislative branch but that's a totally different conversation but the sum and substance of of it is that that yes we 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 now have a situation where 
A new administration comes in and it says, we're going to do these things by fiat. We're going to do these things through executive order. The problem with that is, is that some of those executive orders do in many instances run afoul of existing law, at least to the extent that it means that we're simply not enforcing the law, right? It is not legal in this country for some of the things that we've been seeing police officers do for many of the things that we've seen police officers do to do. They're just not being prosecuted. Right. Like right. That's the laws thing. are we there. Need to, like, it's it's just, just not... the, law, the laws exist. It's not legal to discriminate against Angela Rye's father in government contracting on the basis of race. That's not legal. What are we going to do when a naval officer says we're not going to give that nigger any more money? Like that's a, that that's a law that's being broken. That's simply just not being in, enforced. So there is a so, so there is. But the standard um, for civil rights cases is extremely high, which is why you also see at the federal level, level uh, police officers really getting prosecuted. You have to show intent, right? And so this was, now this is hearsay for this woman who worked for my father to tell him that this is what was said. So the same thing applies here. If the legal standard doesn't change, which is also a legislative thing, but again, bigotry exists in a bipartisan way, that has to shift. The other thing that I think you were getting to Keith, is the fact that if they pass this or they sign into law these executive orders or if they legislate in this particular way, they can still be sued. If it goes to the courts, depending on where we end up, especially given the number, number of Trump appointments, we might be screwed. And that's, I think, a really important thing. Because you were talking about the actual enforcement of laws as they exist. The insurrection is an excellent example of this, right? There's currently a debate where lawmakers and other folks are saying, we do, we have to crack down on this white supremacist terror. Now, how many of us, how many people have been saying and reporting and talking about this indefinitely for however long, but now there is kind of this in the official establishment class of DC, maybe we need to do something. At one point, I think Biden even said, we need to pass a law or X, Y. Well, look, there is an argument to be made, and many people who work in civil liberties, civil, the intersection between civil liberties and civil rights, right, because there is an intersection there, who get spied on, the black and brown people, right, who are saying, no, we don't need another law. We don't need another war on terrorism where this ends up just being you harass our Muslim friend, <laughs> right? Like, you know, law enforcement doesn't necessarily, the argument goes, need more tools. They need to apply the tools they have equally across the that. All of these things that were happening were happening in public. These groups were getting together. They were organizing. They were talking on the internet about what they were going to do. And the reality was if they had looked differently, had different sounding names, there was no way all this Facebook traffic and Twitter traffic about people they were going to kill and hang, they all would have been getting knocks from the Secret Service and the FBI. So much more broadly then, what is the way forward? Because, you know, we heard a lot from Biden um, in his inauguration address about unity. And he clearly views his role right now as unifying the country. To overcome these challenges, to restore the soul and secure the future of America requires so much more than words. It requires the most elusive of all things in a democracy. Unity. Unity. The question is, how do we do that? How do we do that with people who tried to overthrow the government? Uh, we don't. I think it's an offensive ask, right? For me, I, um, I worked on Capitol Hill for six years and um, I don't remember feeling like I felt the day of what I'm calling a terrorist attack um, since 
you know, I did not know if the members who I worked for, who are like family to me, staffers who are like brothers and sisters to me were alive. Um, there's one who I'm particularly close to, Latrice Powell, who, who now um, is the deputy floor director for Nancy Pelosi. We couldn't find Latrice for four hours um, and it was terrifying. How dare you require me to unite with someone who wanted to kidnap AOC? Um, there is no unity there. I'm happy to um, have a conversation or even a listening session about how they got there, how their minds became so warped, but I'm not interested in unifying by painting over the shit. I don't know how else to say it. The attempted redemption of these people, you look at the headlines and they're describing them as, oh, a small town bar owner and there's this humanization and how the people in their community viewed them and loved them and, oh, they were misled by the president and really they're just patriots at heart. I mean, this redemption tour has already started. Mara, well, is... to your point, sorry. No, to your point, um, they always do this. You know this better than me. The headlines will be like 57 year old boy just you know but whereas for us y'all find the lie for us yeah. it's like 13 year old aggressive man right, right. like it's like it's what are we predator. doing right oh yeah or the super predator sorry hills but you know it's true it was it was a a, a formulated concept of this predator of a black man this superhuman or subhuman in some instances and I just, I don't want to conform to that anymore. I'm done being uncomfortable for your comfort. And I mean that. That is a commitment to myself, mm, mantra that word. I will honor for my own self-care and for our ability to truly move forward. I'm, of course, I'm down to move forward. Of course, I'm down to ensure that this country becomes all of what it's supposed to be, but it won't be at my expense anymore. That's what I'm not going to do. So I just, I really would require something different, not just of this administration of Congress and whomever else is in power to really examine what you're asking us to do and why. Who is that really for? If it's because you think you can win back these bigots, you can't. What you need to be trying to do is um, court and get to know this growing and rising majority that is incredible. You need to get merch. I need to see Angela Rye merch that says that. Don't, what was it? Say it again. I'm done being uncomfortable for your comfort. The men are I, speechless, I, so you, you clearly you, you dropped, dropped the you mic. You dropped the mic. I was going to jump back in with a, with a quick point about, <laughs> I was going to jump back in with a, with a point about, uh, going back to what I said earlier about, about um, not being able to unify without there being justice, right? And so we talk about what is restorative justice. Restorative justice looks like treating the criminals like criminals, the actual criminals, the people who tried to literally overthrow the government before you start to have a conversation about how we can reconcile. Right. This is this. That's not a that's not a political. That's not a politicized opinion. There were people. Who made a point and had a plan and acted out trying to either overthrow the United States government or at the very least impede the peaceful transfer of power after someone was duly elected by the people of the United States. Those people, many of them, are still at large. We cannot begin to have a conversation about unifying the country until those people 
have been brought to justice in some way, shape, or form. And, and, and that's not and that's not a prescription. That's not to say, you know, this thing has to happen to those people or they need to be charged with this. That's saying there is a judicial process that, that has to happen. These people all deserve to have a day in court, regardless of which side of the political aisle that you that you stand on. And so to your point, Angela, before you drop the mic on me, um, so your so your point about how can I how can I reconcile with the with the white supremacists or how can I re- reconcile with someone who who tries to do this? It's it's impossible to do that until you start to have until you have a conversation about like what does justice look like? How do we how do we how do those people get their day in court? How do we make sure that there is actual security? in the halls of power of the United States. Like we can't have conver- we can't have conversations about having political debates on the floor, right? Because there are many things that are that happen in in grades. And these questions go to the actual legitimacy of the country and the nation. Right? right? That a cr- crimes were committed. There were victims of those crimes who are owed justice. There were five deaths, right? two, right? two police officers on duty. Much, much less every member of Congress and every staff member there who had their safety uh, called into question, received specific threats, but including Vice President Pence, for the record, right? The things that were being said through through the halls of the Capitol while the Vice President was there with his family, calling for his hanging. And 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 so, (laughs) without any accountability, we're all there. The victims are just going to unify with the unheld accountable perpetrators of the crime. Right. That's not to mean that's not to mean that, you know, there's not an existence of restorative justice. It's not to mean we kick everyone out, you know, but the reality is there has to be some accountability process in order to achieve that restoration. As you were talking, it reminded me of a conversation I was having and maybe a media appearance I did over the summer following George Floyd. And because it was this very typical, like, why is everyone so violent? What's going on? Why did it burst this way, this time? And, I mean, it's just the same tape on Rewind. We've done this, right? So we're saying the same things we said in Ferguson and in Baltimore and in Milwaukee and in Cleveland. And in Watts. And, yes, right. And in Watts and in Harlem in 1935. And it, But but I remember saying this. I said, you know, because if the question is why, why is this happening? How do we calm people down? How do we fix this? I said, well, have you listened to the people, right? For the last four decades, the most popular protest chant has been no justice, no peace. If we don't get no justice, there will be no peace. They told you. <laughs> like, like it's, 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 it's confusing because, because in the absence of justice, in the face of injustice, people grow angry. They grow frustrated. They grow – you can't you, you can't look at someone – and I mean and it gets back to, you know – what's quoted all the, all the time or increasingly quoted, which I think is a good thing in King's letter to Birmingham jail, who people who say they want justice and what they mean is the presence of, of order, right? As opposed to the actual presence of justice, as opposed to the absence of injustice, right? And those are different things that if you, if we're in a society or in a culture where people can do these types of things without any accountability, it doesn't, there's an actual illegitimacy to it. Right. And if the rules don't if the rules don't apply, well, then the rules don't apply. When we say no justice, no peace, it means that we will agitate you and you will get no rest. When they hear us saying no justice, no peace, they think that we're rioters and protesters and violent. 
Whereas in the face of justice for them, they will still tear shit up. And I think that's the real problem because justice to them isn't us getting what we deserve. Justice to them is staying in perpetual power and you black folks, you people of color, you marginalized communities be damned. Let's also be clear about the fact that the people who were the worst actors on Capitol Hill were business owners and people in from state legislatures all over the country and police officers, some from my hometown of Seattle, Washington, who flew in to participate in the nonsense. So even when we say something as violent and offensive as defund the police, all of a sudden, if your eyes are really open with your 2020 vision that you should have from last year, you should understand that what we're talking about is a mentality that has followed us since the oppression of returning enslaved people to their abusive slave owners, right? What we're talking about is a mentality that says justice will be served, laws will be enforced only against you. And as we say, the law is whether you committed the crime or not. So we're talking about defunding an ideology that has perpetually oppressed us. Perhaps they can hear that a little better now. I think sometimes people think about the current movement and people who are talking about law enforcement and criminal justice, and they see them as like intrinsically different in the civil rights movement, which was about something different. I mean, that was about the right to vote. And that was about the, and the two things I always note to people, and I've, and I've like talked to Taylor Branch to fact check to make sure I'm not just out here talking, you know, because I'm not a historian of the civil rights movement, even as I spend a lot of time in the history and write on analogous issues. What we have to remember is one of the reasons the right to vote was so important was because black people were being killed with impunity by white people and by police officers and could not serve on juries and could not vote the sheriffs who covered up the lynchings out that the right to vote was always about physical protection of black people from white supremacists and law, and law enforcement. That we forget the bloody Sunday march while the Selma campaign was about voting rights and the right to register to vote in Selma. The reason they marched on that Sunday was because the state troopers had murdered a, man, a black man. That's why they were on the bridge that day, that there had been a previous march <laughs> that was broken up and there was a police shooting and they said, we're marching to George Wallace to avenge Jimmy Lee Jackson, right? That is a literal march about a police shooting, right? Now, voting is tied up, but that's why they were on that bridge that day. And I think that that, and so there is a through line. Uh, through, in fact, one of the leading civil rights leaders didn't come to the March on Washington because he was in jail for protesting a police shooting in the South at the very moment, right? That this has always been a through line throughout the Black experience in American history. When you, when you talk about, people like to talk about um, how many of the early civil rights leaders, the Ida B. Wells era of folks, were big Second Amendment people. But, and, and they love to kind of trot that out, right? Well, if you read what they were writing, they were saying, because we can't trust the cops if someone comes for you. If the Klan shows up, you need to have a gun because it's not going to matter what this and, and so again, like so much of this now decade, decade and a half of black civil rights struggle has like foundationally been about, do we have a governmental system, a criminal justice system that protects black people from white people and holds those people accountable? And there's, there's just, there's so much overlap there. And I think sometimes in our contemporary conversation, right, we gloss over those parts where it's all sound brighty, it's all these other, look, 
when the history books are written, this is going to be a white supremacist riot at the Capitol that ha occurs the day after Georgia's first black and Jewish senators were elected on the racist lie that Philadelphia and, and Detroit had stolen the election from Donald Trump. I, we know how that's going to read in the history book 100 years from now, the same way that the Reconstruction riots read. <laughs> There's not going to be but all it's because this they ambiguity. Are tied. It, the, the, those two yeah, things, exactly. it wasn't a coincidental convergence. It was a rebellion against black people exercising their political power. That's what that was. And we saw it manifesting. It, it was symbolic and literal at the same time. They were going to go take back their fucking government. thousand percent. A thousand percent. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know there are a lot of different ways that people can can hear and, and follow what you're doing. Um, please give us the plugs. Where can people catch up with you? Sure. So I have a podcast, too. Everybody and their mama got a podcast these days. It's very good. Um, get Talk and get heard, y'all. Talk and get heard. Demo democratize the podcast platform. So I have one called On One with Angela Rye. Um, of course, on social, on Instagram at Angela Rye and on Twitter at Angela underscore. This is a powerful group. Thank you guys. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.